Numbers chapter 20. Father, I pray that you would refine us tonight. Lord, we recognize that no matter how long we've been walking with you, serving you, it may be years, Lord, we still have room to grow. And we still need to be very protective of those things that can harm us, Lord. Father, I pray that you'd speak to us through your word by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Moses was a wonderful, wonderful man of God. Wouldn't you agree? Just a stellar example in the scripture of leadership. At one point, he was called the meekest man on the earth. He had this profound, wonderful, personal, intimate relationship with God. And God had called him to such a difficult task to deliver the nation of Israel from Egypt, and then to lead two and a half to three million people around the wilderness for 40 years. And he was faithful to do so, and he was very effective in doing so. Wonderful, wonderful man of God. But tonight we read of a a bad day for Moses. He makes a big mistake here in Numbers chapter 20. He commits a very big sin. And it's towards the end of his life. And it will cost him dearly. It will cost him great consequences. Let's see what happened with him so we can avoid it. Look at verse 1 of Numbers chapter 20. It says, then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. So here the nation comes to the land of Kadesh, which is right on the outskirts of the promised land. They had been at that same spot 40 years earlier. That first generation was right there. They were getting ready to go into the promised land. God said, go. But remember, the first generation believed the bad report from the ten spies. And so they didn't go in. And the judgment for the first generation was that they would wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died out. So here we are at the end of those wilderness wandering years. That first generation has almost all died out. By the way, 600,000 men dying. That would average about 40 deaths per day for 38 to 40 years. A lot of death. And here we read that Miriam died. Miriam was a great prophetess. She was a leader of the people. And she was also the older sister to Moses. 
Miriam and Moses no doubt loved each other very much. Miriam was the one who watched over her baby brother Moses when he was placed in that little basket and placed out on the Nile River. And no doubt they had a very special relationship together. But here she's died and she's buried. This is the first of Moses' siblings to die. And by the way, the judgment was that everyone in the first generation would die in the wilderness. Except for whom? Joshua and Caleb. And so Miriam has died. And by the way, at the end of Numbers chapter 20, Moses' older brother Aaron will die. The first high priest. So understand that in this chapter where Moses blows it, he's going through a difficult time of sorrow. He's grieving the loss of a sister. It's a tough place. And yet, the needs of the people continue. The job of leadership doesn't end. And that's one of the things that people don't understand about leadership and need to. When you're a leader, you have to keep leading and doing the right things, even if you're facing difficult times personally. And that can be very difficult, and that's what Moses is being asked to do. And look what happens right on the heels of Miriam's death, a scene that we're all too familiar with. Look at verse 2. It says, now there was no water, uh uh-oh, for the congregation. So they gathered together against Moses and Aaron, And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. Nor is there any water to drink. Okay, no water. That's a problem, right? But their response again to this is one of complete unbelief. And completely ugly towards Moses and Aaron. It says that they contended with Moses here. Remember, that's a strong word. We've seen it before. Literally, attacking Moses, lashing out at Moses, rebelling against Moses, grumbling, complaining. And they say all sorts of crazy things. They say, man, I wish we would have died with our brethren in the Lord. And who are they talking about? Last week, we talked about Korah, Dathan, and Abijan, those rebels that try to mutiny. Remember how they were judged. They were consumed with fire. The earth opened up. And they went down into a pit. And now these folks are saying, I wish we would have gone down into the pit with them. I wish we would have been consumed with fire. Moses, why did you bring us into this land where there's no water? And while we're asking that question, why did you bring us out of Egypt to begin with? You promised us grapes and figs and grain and pomegranates. 
Blame shifting, blaming everything on Moses. Was it Moses' fault that they didn't go into the promised land? No. They chose not to go into the promised land after seeing samples of grapes and pomegranates and figs that they could have gone in and enjoyed, but they turned their back. No, no. So very ugly, in your face, annoying. And by the way, who's complaining here? The second generation. See, the first generation has almost died out, right? Maybe there's a couple remnants of them left. But this is the second generation that's complaining. Like father, like like son. If the parents are a bunch of chronic complainers, then the kids that they raise are going to grow up to be a bunch of chronic complainers. And that's very important. Understand that, mom and dad. Your influence on your child is huge. Especially while they're there with you in in the house in their young, formidable years. And they're very keen to what you do, not what you say. They watch. And so if you're going to be the complaining sort, always complaining around the house about everything, your kids are going to grow up complaining. If you're going to be the mom or dad who claims to be a Christian but still goes out and does all the, you know, the happy hours and all that kind of stuff, well, then your kids are going to grow up to be like that. You know what? I've met some of the parents of uh, my kids' friends at school. You know, we'll hang out. And there's one guy in particular. And everywhere you go, this guy's drinking beer. It doesn't matter where he's at. He's got a beer. And then he complains, you know, my kids, they're always drinking beer. What's wrong with you? Understand that. We need to be real good examples to our kids. Mom and dad, show Christ to your kids. Live Christ in front of them. One elder statesman of a Christian church has devoted himself to a 50-year study of Christians and non-Christian families. He says that in American culture today, most young adults following Jesus Christ either come from non-Christian homes where they were converted to Christ in their teenage years through a dynamic youth ministry, or they come from homes where they grew up in love with Jesus because mom and dad were so in love with Jesus that love permeated their lives. It passed through their pores. Very few believers come from homes where there was a kind of indifferent, apathetic commitment to Christ. Be committed to Christ. Show your kids the love of Christ. Take care of that second generation. Amen? So the second generation is complaining, and Moses is extremely annoyed. You'll see, he is just frustrated 
with this whole thing. I can see him thinking, man, 40 years of this. And my sisters just died. Why don't they leave me alone? Right? But he does the right thing in verse 6. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces. Boy, they're on their faces all the time, aren't they? And the glory of the Lord appeared to him. So Moses and Aaron, they're beside themselves. They don't know what to do. When you're in that situation, you go and you just stretch out before the Lord. They just fall on their faces before God. And God shows up. And God gives them instructions. Read these very carefully. Verse 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. Okay, question. What's God's tone like there? Is the Lord angry? No, he's not. There's not a tone of anger. I see a gracious tone. I see mercy. I mean, this, this generation doesn't deserve it. They're complaining, but he wants to bless them. He wants to give the second generation opportunities, just like he gave the first generation opportunities for many years. Now, here's the second generation. There are a bunch of complainers. But on this first occasion, the Lord says, you know what? I want to bless them. There's no anger. I want to pour out my grace upon my people. And then the instructions are very clear. Moses, you and Aaron are to take up the rod. You are to assemble the people next to the rock. Not just a boulder. Think of a giant cliff. And when you get everybody together there, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. And then water is going to gush forth and I'm going to bless my people. I'm going to refresh them. I'm going to give them and their animals a good drink. Clear? Crystal, right? Let's see what Moses does. Verse 9. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. He did that right. God said, take the rod. He took the rod. Verse 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. Was that right? Yep, take the rod, gather the assembly before the rock. Now Moses goes off the rails. And he said to them, hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Now listen, God told him to speak to the rock, not to the people. God never told Moses to bring this beautiful message to his people. This was an impromptu, explosive burst of frustration. Here now, you rebels. 
The Greek Septuagint version of the Bible, if you don't know what that is, that's where even the Hebrew in the Old Testament has been translated into Greek. And the Greek word they use for rebels here is the Greek word moros. You know what English word we get from that? Moron. You bunch of morons. You blockheads. You idiots. You fools. That's not good. That's not good. Now, he was supposed to speak to the rock. Verse 11. Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rock. Notice, he starts beating the rock. Not just once, but twice. And you just know that if he could have used that rod on some of the people, he would have done that, right? I mean, here's a guy that loses it. He's losing it. He's lost it. God, in his grace, still allowed water to come out. Verse 11, then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. The leader blew it, but God's still going to bless his people. But there will be consequences for Moses. Verse 12, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. By the way, Aaron's complicit in all of this. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land, which I have given them. Moses, you're not going to lead them into the land. Moses, you have forfeited your blessing of leading these people. Into the land. And that's exactly what happened. As I said, at the end of this chapter, Aaron dies. Moses will get a good look at the promised land, but he dies. Tough. Was it fair? Do you read this story and sort of feel sorry for Moses? I mean, 40 years of faithfulness? 40 years? Blows it right there? His sister just died? He's going through some tough personal issues? Give him a break? Those people were very annoying? 40 years of it? He blew his top? Hmm. No, Moses had consequence for his sin. And you say, well, that's very, very tough. But listen, this is a very important principle. The Bible is absolutely crystal clear about this. Leadership 
has a higher standard. Leadership is held to a higher standard and has a higher accountability before the Lord. Why? Because leaders lead a lot of people, and if leaders blow it, they hurt a lot of people. Leadership is called to a higher accountability. Leadership among God's people is not a position to take lightly. It is not to be seen as a place of power, prestige, perks. Leadership is a position of responsibility. James chapter 3 verse 1 says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. If you are a leader in the church, you're held to a higher standard. You need to discipline yourself constantly throughout your life. You need to... uh, Live what you're teaching others. You need to practice what you preach. Period. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul said, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Leaders are to continue to do what's right, even in a time of personal hurt and pain. Leaders are to continue to do what's right, even when under pressure. Leaders are to do what's right, good, and godly, even when people are driving them nuts. That is the position of leadership. So if you are called to be a leader... Think through that. Now, some of you are thinking, I ain't going to be no leader. Listen, if you're called to be a leader and you're not a leader, that's a sin. If God has gifted you and called you to lead his people, then lead. But also take up that mantle of leadership. Carry the responsibility of it. All right, let's sort of look at this sin. Let's look what Moses did. Let's look what we can learn from it, what we can avoid. Because there's things that Moses did that we need to avoid here as Christians, leader or not. Okay, obviously, number one, he disobeyed the Lord, didn't he? Did he not disobey the Lord? That Lord the Lord said, speak to that rock. And he hit that rock. Disobedience. Blatant, downright disobedience to a command of the Lord will always get you in trouble. Always. And you don't play games with God over those things. You think, well, I've been a Christian for many, many years. Moses had been a believer for 40 years. 80 years. Think, well, that doesn't apply to me now. I'm a veteran Christian. 
Oh, no. Disobedience will always get you in some trouble. And so, obviously, in this case, Moses was disobedient. Also, very clear here that Moses was extremely harsh with the people, wasn't he? And a leader is never to be overly harsh with God's people in a fit of uncontrolled anger. I mean, calling them a bunch of morons, right? That's off the charts. If you're a leader in any way, shape, or form over a ministry, and by the way, even if you're not a leader, you should never lash out at other Christians in uncontrolled anger. You shouldn't call your brother or sister in Christ a a moron. should never do that. No matter how annoyed you might be, leader, No matter how might they even deserve. If you're called into a leadership position, you are not to to fly off the handle in a fit of rage. You know, there are preachers um, that get real upset with their congregation. And they will use the pulpit to vent. They'll get real angry. In fact, I know of a church that was going through a very difficult time financially. They were having a real hard time. All the funds were going down. And, and uh, this particular pastor got super upset. And he was told by his board, you need to get up in that pulpit and preach a fiery sermon on tithing. You get up there and you tell those people they need to give more of their money to God. And hit them over the head with it. Come on. That is uncalled for. A preacher might get hurt by somebody in the congregation or finds out about a gossip thing happening. And then a preacher might get up in the pulpit and blast members in his congregation. Not right. Not good. Or a pastor might get really down or upset about maybe the lack of commitment that he sees among certain folks in the congregation. And might get up and say, man, we need to be more committed. And just really start beating God's people. In anger. Lashing out. The pulpit should not be used like that. It should not be used by a preacher as some calculated way of trying to get people convicted by the Holy Spirit in the guise of what's actual human wrath and anger. In fact, it won't do one iota of good. We're told in James 1, verse 20, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So if a man gets up and starts beating up everyone, 
pouring out wrath on people. It doesn't accomplish any. It doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. Be very, very careful. Now, I will admit to you, I've been at this for 20 years, and there's been times where I've been tempted to get up and just really hit something. I've even had members of my board say, Terry, you need to get up there and wallop. But I've been very careful not to do that. Hopefully. Maybe I I hope I haven't done it. But I will tell you this, I have a great safeguard. You know what my safeguard is? Expository teaching. Going through the Bible verse by verse, systematically, book by book. Do you know how many times that has saved me? Because I have subjected myself to this book. So my messages come from this book from week to week in a systematic way. Usually where I left off last week, I start at the very next verse next week. So I might be really, really mad at somebody, but I have to preach on unconditional love. (laughs) See, it totally keeps me from riding my hobby horses. It protects me from venting. And I really do, folks. I trust the Lord every week. That he's given me a passage. And my job is to preach that passage, not my views. And it has been so very helpful. And it has safeguarded me. Now, if you happen to be at a service and I'm teaching and um, the Holy Spirit convicts you. Well, then if the shoe fits, wear it. Because I'm not running around all week checking your life out. And I've actually had people say that to me. I said, Terry, what you said really bugged me. have Have you been watching my life? Yeah, right. Absolutely not. If the, if, the, if the Holy Spirit has a strong word for you from a passage in the scripture that we just happen to be going over, boy, you better sit up and take notice. That's the Lord moving, not the wrath of man. So that's what makes this sin, I think, very grievous. He's just being really ugly with God's people. And you don't do that. You don't do that. You just faithfully preach God's word. And let him, let the Holy Spirit convict. We also see that Moses has become entirely self-focused in this whole incident. He has completely lost focus of God. His eyes are completely focused on himself. Notice again what he said at the end of verse 10. To the people, he says, Hear now, you rebels. Must whom? Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Oh, must we? Let meaning Moses and Aaron. Oh, 
must we bring water for you out of this rock? Hey, who brings water out of the rock? God does. What, is Moses able to do miracles now? That's a very key point. Understand, at this point in his life, he's very frustrated. And all that's going on in his life, he's sort of become obsessed with himself. He's left God out of the picture. Very dangerous place to be. And understand that, brother and sister in Christ, when you're going through a hard time in life, when you're going through some difficult problems, when you got some frustration, when you got some pressure, when you got some people that might be annoying you, when you got some things happening all over your life, at that moment, it's very easy for you to become totally immersed in yourself, completely, totally focused on your problem, your world, and losing sight of the Lord, who's way greater than any problem you're going to face. you find yourself in a position like that be extra careful and be more deliberate in intentionally getting your eyes off yourself and on Christ amen because it's at times like that that you can get in a lot of trouble even leaders okay but I think the most uh the worst thing of this episode, and we even see it in God's response to Moses in verse 12. The big crime here is that Moses misrepresented God, didn't he? Moses as a leader misrepresented God. That's what the Lord says to him in verse 12. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me. To hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. You didn't reverence me in the eyes of the children of Israel. You didn't faithfully represent me. Again, was God mad at them? But how did Moses portray the Lord? Moses, by his action and words, is portraying God as this angry God who thinks they're a bunch of morons. And that wasn't at all what God was thinking. Misrepresenting the Lord. Terrible thing. Be very careful. And this would be to leaders and to all Christians alike. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors. That's a strong word. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us. Christian, you're an ambassador for Christ. You know what an ambassador does? Represents the king of the kingdom. Speaks on behalf of the king of the kingdom. And represents the kingdom itself. Understand that, my brother and sister in Christ. When you're out there running around living your life, you represent Christ. You speak for Christ. You represent 
his kingdom. Represent him well. Represent him well. If you're calling yourself a Christian and you're out there living this wild life, are you representing Christ? If you're a hypocrite, an outright hypocrite, totally one way on Sunday or at church and a total different way around another group of friends, are you representing Christ? Well, when you talk about the Lord, do you represent him well? You know, there are some Christians who, in the way they talk about God, sort of paint God as this angry, wrathful, I'm going to get you type God. Be careful. He's a God of grace and mercy. On the other hand, some Christians go around and they talk about God as though he doesn't care what anybody does. Do whatever you want. I'll just let you all in. I don't care how people... Is that true? No, you better represent God right in the balance that we find in Scripture. This is what really, really was the biggie. He misrepresented God before the people. By the way, Moses also blew... A wonderful prophetic picture here. Did you know that? Now he probably had no idea that he was doing this. But Moses in the way he acted. Totally ruined a prophetic picture that God wanted. Way back in Exodus chapter 17. When the first generation has just come out of Egypt. A mirror event of this happened. Did you know that? The congregation comes to an area. And... They're thirsty and they cry out. They contend with Moses and Moses falls on his face before God. And the Lord says, Moses, I want you to get up. I want you to assemble the people before a great rock. And in that case, God commanded Moses to strike it, strike the rock. And I'm sure Moses enjoyed that. He struck the rock. This time... He was told to speak to the rock. Why? Well, we find out from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that that rock in the wilderness was symbolic of whom? Jesus Christ. How many times did Jesus Christ get stricken? How many times did he have to die? Once. The rock was only beaten once. For our salvation that we might drink of living water. Isn't that wonderful? Christ has done the work. He never has to sacrifice again. Heaven is open. So I think God. Had this beautiful illustration in line. And Moses blew it. Instead of speaking. He hit the rock. And there is no need. To strike the rock again. Okay. So. Moses blew it. And there were consequences. 
But there's still a lot of grace in this story. There's a lot of grace in this story. There's grace for that generation that was complaining, wasn't there? Did they deserve it? But God graciously, graciously gave them living water. Gave them water from the rock. And God did not give up on that generation. He would bring them into the promised land. They didn't deserve the promised land. But God in his grace brought them into the promised land. Moses, Miriam, Aaron, they'd all die. But God would raise up new leadership. And bring his people into the promised land. It's been said that God's workers die, but his work never dies. God always raises up someone. And God was very gracious with Moses. Yes, Moses will not be allowed to lead the people into the promised land. But did you know that Moses actually gets to hang out in the promised land later? In a wonderful, glorious way. Better than he would have in Numbers chapter 20. Do you remember the story in Matthew chapter 17? Where Jesus takes a few of his disciples up on a mountaintop. And all of a sudden two guys are glowing with them right there in the middle. of Who's one of those guys? Moses. Glorified. How cool is that? Moses. He got to see the promised land. By the way, many think it's going to be Moses and Elijah who will come on the scene in the last days as those last two prophets. Standing in Jerusalem, standing in the temple. So Moses did and will get to see the promised land. The judgment against him was that he wouldn't get to lead those people into the promised land. Not that he'd never see the promised land. Moses, God showed him grace. There were consequences there, but God shows him grace. You know, one of the things I love about the scripture is that it tells the whole story, don't you? I mean, here's this great man of God, Moses. He makes a mistake, pretty big one. And they could have edited that, right? Yeah, we'll just... We won't put that out there, right? We want to keep this positive thing of Moses happening. But hey, look. The Bible's honest. The Bible shows people's flaws. And you see that throughout Scripture. God uses flawed people, doesn't he? And though his people may make some silly mistakes... And have to suffer some consequences. They're still under the grace of God. God uses flawed people. And that gives us great hope and comfort. I love what one Christian author wrote. He said, there are many reasons why God shouldn't have called you. But don't worry. You're in good company. Moses stuttered. David's armor didn't fit. John Mark was rejected by Paul. 
Timothy had ulcers. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Amos's only training was in the school of fig tree pruning. Jacob was a liar. David had an affair. Solomon was too rich. Jesus was too poor. Abraham was too old. David was too young. Peter was afraid of death. Lazarus was dead. John was self-righteous. Naomi was a widow. Paul was a murderer. So was Moses. Jonah ran from God. Miriam was a gossip. Gideon and Thomas both doubted. Jeremiah the prophet was depressed and suicidal. Elijah was burned out. John the Baptist was a loudmouth. Martha was a worry wart. Mary was lazy. Samson had long hair. Noah got drunk. Did I mention that Moses had a short fuse? So did Peter, Paul. Well, lots of folks in the scripture did. But God doesn't require a job interview. He doesn't hire and fire like most bosses because he's more our dad than our boss. He doesn't look at financial gain or loss. He's not prejudiced or partial, not judging, grudging, sassy or brassy, nor deaf to our cry, nor blind to our need. As much as we try, God's gifts are free. We could do wonderful things for wonderful people and still not be wonderful. Satan says, you're not worthy. Jesus says, so what? I am. Satan looks back and sees our mistakes. God looks back and sees the cross. Amen. Join the company of flawed men and women whom God uses in profound ways. Father, I pray that you would bring great encouragement to our hearts, recognizing that there is tough things, that we are held to accountable, accountability. Lord, that we need to be very careful with our lives. And for those here tonight who need to hear that, I pray that they would turn from the lifestyle that's not pleasing and turn to you wholeheartedly. Lord, but we also recognize that you are such a wonderful God of grace. And you pour, you lavish us with grace. Your forgiveness is wonderful. Your compassion is great, O Lord. Your faithfulness is new every morning. And so, Lord, for those here tonight who perhaps are sitting on the sidelines feeling unworthy 
Lord, for maybe those who have blown it big time. For those who sit here with a sense of guilt. Lord, I pray for a healing tonight. Or though there may be some consequences. May there be an understanding tonight that you are still the God of grace. And you can pick us up. Take us off the shelf. Dust us off and use our lives again. So I pray for that, Lord. Lord, I also want to pray for this group tonight as parents, Lord, that our children would grow up to know you in in a real way by watching us. Make us strong moms and dads. No matter how old our kids are, may we be the voice of truth and love and wisdom in their lives. Father, I pray that we would continue to have our eyes squarely focused on you. Lord, that our eyes would never get off you in the good times or the bad times. Be first place. Be the first person we look to every morning. Because, Lord, we know when our eyes are on you, we're walking in your path. And the waves go away, Lord. The fear goes away. So help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.